Merry Christmas. <laughs> Nothing? Merry Christmas. Uh, you know, it's April, and it's the warmest day of spring we've, we've had yet, and, and your pastor is starting his sermon with Merry Christmas. Uh, what is going on? Well, we're celebrating Christmas in April uh, this year because the text we're going to look at, uh, Revelation 12, is a Christmas text. And, and so we need to put ourselves in the Christmas mode. For some of us, that might be, you know, thinking of James Taylor's Christmas album, just for some of us. Uh, you know, for others, it might be, you know, memories, and we're, we're thinking of snowflakes and Christmas traditions and baked goods, and uh, this is a Christmas text that we are looking at in the middle of April, uh, but it's not going to sound like a Christmas text. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily read and uh, take the connotations of Christmas as we often think and reflect uh, about it, uh, but that is what it is, and it has something uh, to say to us today. Uh, and uh, when it was written at the time, it was intended to encourage the church and, and give them insight into why things are the way they are uh, today. And so I'm going to invite you to stand uh, with me as we read uh, the text from Revelation 12, uh, which is our text for this morning. Uh, and I'll, I'll read and you can follow along there on the screen. Uh, then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because her labor pain and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his he he heads. <laughs> his tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to earth with all his angels. Then I heard a voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth the one who accuses them before, the God day, before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice, but terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would, she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth, but the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You, you can have a seat. So 
So we are looking at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, the word revelation literally means apocalypse. John the apostle, the pastor, calls this the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And apocalypse simply means unveiling, the unboxing, the pulling back the curtain. And so John wrote this uh, book. He wrote, wrote this vision down that Jesus had given them to encourage and inspire churches at the time uh, who were struggling to remain faithful to Jesus under the Roman Empire. And so often we come, or people have come to the book of Revelation uh, as if it's a predictor of future events, uh, but the context tells us that the book of Revelation was encouraged to encourage, was written to encourage the church in the first century, and the, the messages of the book are just as applicable today as they were in the first century. Uh, much of what we read in the book of Revelation is applicable from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. And the text of Revelation 12 that we just read, the Christmas story, is, the, is when Jesus came to earth, when God came in the form of a human being, uh, at, in the form of a baby. Uh, and this scene John uses to, to give context to the message that he has for the churches. It's in the center of the book of Revelation. Uh, and the message is central to how the church ought to respond uh, during this time. Uh, so John is in prison on the island of Patmos, and he's in prison because he's a prisoner, uh, because he refused to bow his knee to Caesar. He believed that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He believed that Jesus was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, uh, and so he would not bow his knee to Caesar, even though Caesar uh, at the time was requiring people to profess that he was God. Uh, but John believed that there was only one God, and this God was clearly revealed in Jesus uh, and so around 96 AD, John is writing this letter from the island of Patmos as a prisoner to seven different churches that he had influenced and connection and relationship with, encouraging them to remain faithful uh, to Jesus and to remain faithful to the way of Jesus. And so there's two pastoral purposes for this apocalypse, for this unveiling, for this revealing. The purpose that John is writing uh, for is to set the present moment in light of the unseen realities of the future. John is trying to help his churches know that there's something coming that changes the way that you ought to live today. There's something that's not far away, and so remain faithful in the present in light of what's coming in the future. Uh, but primarily, John, is, is his, the second pastoral purpose is to present the moment in light of the unseen realities of the present. And as we've discovered, this apocalypse, this unveiling of what is presently true and real, uh, the greatest unseen reality of the present is actually a person. The greatest unseen reality of the present is actually a person. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus doesn't identify as an idea. He, he, he says that truth is not an idea, but it is a person. And so in the same way, John comes in this revelation, in this apocalypse, saying the greatest news, the good news, in the midst of the chaos and the tornado and the whirlwind that we find ourselves in in the world today, is that Jesus is on the throne, that Jesus is in control. And when we pull back the curtains, regardless of what we're seeing and what we're experiencing, that there is a better word, that whatever we're walking through is not the last word. And so Jesus, because he was born, because he died, because he rose again, because he's alive and because he's on the throne and because he's the, he is truth above all truth, it gives us comfort and it gives us fortitude in the present to live and follow the way of Jesus. 
And so John is encouraging his churches with this revelation, with this apocalypse, as these churches are struggling to follow the way of Jesus. And we looked at this the very first couple of weeks, but just to remind you that this is the context that the churches were struggling with. Some of the churches that he's writing to were struggling with assimilation. They were struggling not to adopt the culture and the worldview and the values of the Roman Empire that was around them. Some of the churches uh, decided they wanted to kind of ride the fence and they, would, they, they didn't want to be persecuted. They, didn't, uh, they, they wanted to hang on to their life and their comfort and they thought, well, if we just kind of do enough to be good citizens in Rome, then we can still be faithful to Jesus and kind of ride the, ride the fence in the middle. Uh, and John was encouraging them not to water down their faith, but to be bold in their faith. Uh, and there were churches uh, that were choosing to profess and to live as if Jesus was king, and there, that there was only one king, and those churches found themselves being persecuted and, and working and living through hardship. And so John is encouraging these churches with this apocalypse. And this whole section in uh, Revelation chapter 12 began... Uh, the verse before in Revelation 11:19, where it says, Then in heaven the temple of God was opened, and the ark of his covenant would be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed, and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. Uh, and I start here because if we were to pull back and look from like a very high level at the book of Revelation, there is four different acts throughout the book of Revelation. Four times the scene changes, the act changes. Uh, each one of these acts starts with the word open, and we see that we just finished Act 1, uh, what we finished last week, and now there's a new act that's beginning in 1119. We'll see that in, fifth, in chapter 15, verse 5, the word open kind of opens up a new act, and then finally we see this final revelation, this final apocalypse of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, um, and that uh, act opens in Revelation 19. And so John is telling us that there's a, there's a greater revelation than what we've already seen. There's something that he wants us to understand. Uh, and this is seen even in the image of him uh, going into the temple, seeing the Holy of Holies. And John, being a good uh, Jewish boy, understood that the Holy of Holies was this place historically where heaven and earth collided. The Holy of Holies was this, this place in the center of the temple uh, where only a few people were allowed to go into. And so what we're understanding as we head into the second act is that, that John is being brought deeper and deeper into this apocalypse, into this revelation, that he's going to understand and see something uh, that before he hadn't seen. And so we look at Acts 2, scene number one. And so there's three different scenes in Act 2 that, we, uh, that we've just read. And so see, in Act 2 is answering the question, why is all this happening? When we look around in the chaos and the upheaval and the hardship, and we thought that Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords, but it looks like he's losing. And so how do we make sense of this? The, the, the faith that we profess and the reality that we're living in, how do we make sense of this? And Act 2 is trying to tell us why all of this is happening. And there's three characters in Acts 2. And so before we dive into the text itself, um, let's get familiar with the characters. So as this act begins, we're introduced to three characters, a woman, a dragon, and a child. First, let's look at the woman. Who is this woman? Well, through the different metaphors and references that John is making, uh, we know that the woman actually represents three different aspects. And the first one is the people of God. 
Uh, how do we know? Well, the, the text actually says, I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. She represents the whole people of God, God's people before the birth of the child and God's people after the birth of the child. How do we know this? Well, the, the metaphor or the, the pictures uh, that are given here actually come from the Old Testament. They come from the book of Genesis. Uh, Joseph has a dream and he sees these aspects in his dream, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down to him. Uh, the sun turns out to be his father, the moon his mother, the 11 stars his 11 brothers, a woman clothed with the sun the moon beneath her 12 feet, 12 stars on her head, points to Israel as embodied by Jacob and Rachel and Joseph and his brothers. Uh, these are clear Old Testament references to the people of God, to the nation of Israel. The woman is the people of God from whom the child comes out of into the world. We also know that the, this is a, a picture. The woman is a metaphor, a picture of the church. The woman flees into the wilderness uh, and, and we see here, uh, it says, her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up by God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1,260 days. So the people of God are now in a time of wilderness. And we see this reference to 1,260 days, which is equivalent to three and a half years, which is half of the number Seven, and we talked about this quite a bit last week, but seven uh, is the number of completeness, of wholeness, of fullness. Uh, and three and a half years, 1,260 days, is, is a carryover of the number, the symbolic numbers that we saw from Revelation chapter 11. And God is predicting that his church on earth will be going through a significant struggle for a certain amount of time for a significant amount of time, but it's not a permanent amount of time. This is not a complete time. It's not the fullness of time. It's three and a half years. It's half of completeness. It's half of fullness. And so what we're going through right now is not the whole story. It's not the complete story. It's not the full story, but it is part of our story, that the church is in a time of struggle, in a time of wilderness, but it's not the whole story. And we also know that the, the woman is clearly also represents Mary, uh, in whom the primary role of Israel and the church in the world is focused. She, is the, she was literally the person who gave birth uh, to Jesus, and we read about that Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2. So Jesus was born, and, and the dragon, or Herod, actually came to try and uh, eliminate Jesus, uh, which brings us to the second character, the dragon. And so the dragon mixes Greek and Roman mythology with the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that uh, in, a, in a little bit. But the, the, John identifies the dragon as the arch enemy of God. He says the dragon, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. And so the, the word Satan or Hasatan literally means accuser. Everybody say accuser. The Hasatan, the Satan, tells us that this dragon, or John says that this Hasatan, this dragon, is the great accuser, uh, and that is what the term actually means. In Revelation 12.10, day and night, it says, the accuser takes the sins of God's people and throws it at them, at them day and night. That what it literally, that's what it literally means to be an accuser. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before God day and night. John is telling us that the dragon is wreaking havoc in the world by going around accusing people, telling them how terrible they are, 
accusing people of their sins, accusing people of the bad things that they've done. Uh, you, you think this is a little weird for the dragon, the epitome of evil to be doing, but this is actually his role is to accuse, to bring sins before people, to bring your past before you and to hold it out in front of you and accuse you and to shame you. Um, and it should also warn us as we recognize that this is the role of the Hasatan, of the Satan, is to accuse that any time that we actually step into a place of accusing others, of slandering others, we are getting caught up in the dragon's game. We are doing what the dragon himself does. And so we need to be very careful. But this is the way the dragon works. He accuses. He puts our sins before us. He puts your past before you. And he's trying to destroy you and minimize you and bring destruction by accusing you. He's also a deceiver. Everybody say deceiver. This comes from the term devil, which is literally uh, the, the word diabolos, uh, and John picks up on this language too in Revelation 12. He says, this great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to earth with all his angels. It is, this is the character of Satan, of the devil. He is a deceiver. In fact, Jesus calls him the father of lies in John 8:44. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan, the devil himself is deceived. He wants to be God. And so he deceives humanity who also has a tendency to want to be God. He constantly plays games with the truth. He comes, Scripture says, like an angel of light, just slightly twisting what is true so that we would believe it, so that we would be deceived by it. And we know that what informs you, forms you. What informs you, forms you. So what, the voices that we listen to actually shape who we become in the world that we create. What we give our attention to will help shape our future and others' futures. What we think about, we actually become. And so it's really important that we identify the role of Satan, the devil, as one who is an accuser and a deceiver. Uh, And as we see here in John 8 and Revelation 12, he's also a murderer. Everybody say murderer. John says that the dragon seeks to kill. He is bent on destruction. In John 10, Jesus says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's why he's the color red, the color of blood. The dragon intimidates with the threat of death. And so I ask you, do we literally see a dragon showing up and killing? Or is there a dragon in the future, maybe this is referring to, that's going to show up and kill? Well, we we already know this is talking about the present. And do we see a dragon that literally shows up and kills? No, we don't. And so we understand that this is a sign. Actually, John refers to the dragon being a sign. He refers to the woman being a sign. We don't literally see a dragon doing this. So how does the dragon actually kill and create destruction? We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. Um, But in order to understand how this happens, we need to understand the role of human beings in the course of history. In Genesis, God says that he created us in his image. He created us to be like God, uh, which doesn't mean he created us to be God, but there's part of uh, being an image bearer of God that marks what it means to be human. And part of what marks what it marks to be part of what it means to be marked in the image of God and to be human 
is that we were created to create. That we have the capacity that is different than the rest of creation, that is different than anything else that God has created to help form and create the present and the future. We know this. We live in a building that human hands created. You drove here in a vehicle that human hands created. Uh, you live your lives with the highs and the lows and the pains and the, joy, and the joys of what human hands have decided and done to you and us to others. We are all creating the present. We're all creating the world that we live in. And this is why it's critical to understand that the enemy, who is not a creator, he's an he is a heavenly being. Satan uh, does not primarily or does not destroy by showing up as a dragon. He shows up by deceiving and accusing humans who have the capacity to create to believe a lie. And so what happens when we believe the lie of the accuser and the deceiver is that we create havoc even in our own lives and the lives of those around us. Instead of partnering with God to create shalom, which is the, the biblical picture we see at the beginning and the end of the scripture, and this is where the book of Revelation is going to end, this picture of shalom where God uh, has renewed all things, that humanity is living in right relationship with God, with self, with others, and the created world. Instead of actually us making decisions that partner with God to create shalom, we partner with the enemy when we believe him in his lies of accusation and deception and create destruction. And so this is actually how the enemy works. He works through humanity, through the systems of this world, causing us to believe things that are untrue, and then we live out of those beliefs. And so do we believe the narrative of the dragon, or do we believe the narrative of the father? And so that brings us to the child. And what's interesting is John refers to the dragon as a sign. He refers to the woman as a sign, but he doesn't refer to the child as a sign because the other two are metaphors, but the child is uh, an actual historical person. The child, we know, is Jesus. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. He was born uh, by the Holy Spirit through Mary. He was part of uh, the people of God, the plan of God that God had throughout history. We know that the child is the Lamb of God. And this child is the object of Satan's wrath and anger. Why? Because this child was prophesied and came to pass that he would be the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he would be the Messiah. And the dragon actually wants to be God. He wants to be the center of the earth. And so the child and the dragon are at odds with one another. And so these are the three major characters we see in Revelation 12, Act 2, Scene 1, the woman, the dragon, the child, the dragon, the enemy of God and humanity, the child, the God's son, Emmanuel, God with us, the savior of humanity, and the woman, the people from whom God's son was born. In every culture, even outside of the biblical cultures, has a meta-narrative, a story, a story by which they make sense of the world. They, they have uh, what we would refer to as mental maps or paradigms. And we all have mental maps. We all have ways that help us navigate and understand reality, where we are, where we're going, how to make sense of what's around us. Uh, we have these mental maps. When you have a phone and you have a, a GPS and your GPS is telling you where to go, you are following a map. And in many ways, we have those maps in our, in our head. Um, 
You know, I, when I was hunting for a house years ago, um, there was a realtor at SunWest, and I, I don't want to uh, tell you who it was because we've got a few realtors here, but I'll just say that his name rhymes with John Clausen. Um, we were going around looking for a house, and, uh, and uh, we were looking at multiple houses, and I was sitting in the passenger seat with John, and, and John says, hey, look in my glove compartment. I pulled this glove compartment, and he's got like this ancient map book. Uh, so this isn't like, this isn't, we're not talking about the 1960s here. Uh, and, and so I pull up this map book and, and he says, look on, you know, whatever page, page 60 and, you know, uh, reference like G3. I'm looking like actual coordinates and, uh, we're looking at the street maps and I'm like, John, there's like, there's like, you know, smartphones that tell you how to do this now. And he said, no, this has been working for me for years. He's like, I'm never going to change it. Um, and so we went around the city using physical maps uh, to find where we were going. And for, for John, this was his, his map. This, this is what guided him. For many of us, we have maps uh, that help guide us. Uh, but this Revelation 12 story was intended by Jesus through John to the church to be a mental map, a map that would help them navigate and understand what is happening. And John is using images from the Old Testament, yes, but he also uses images from the current culture. And this is just uh, an interesting to know that not far from the island of Patmos, where John is writing this letter, uh, is the island of Delos. And it's, uh, and it's a sacred place to the Greeks because it claimed to be the birthplace of the god Apollo, son of Zeus. When Leto, who is Apollos' mother, was pregnant with Apollo, she fled to the island of Delos to escape the dragon Python. Python wanted to kill the new son of Zeus, but Apollo was protected. And many of the images that John is using here are actually cultural images and Old Testament images. He's bringing these mental maps together, and he's saying that you know every culture, whether they were part of Israel's culture or a different culture, has mental maps and how we understand reality. And John is trying to help all cultures see that this is the truth of reality. This is the actual apocalypse of what is happening behind the scenes. No matter your cultural story, let me tell you the ultimate story of what's going on and how to understand what's currently happening in the world. And so when did all this happen? We know that this happened in the first century. When did the arch enemy of God first try to kill Jesus? We know that this is the Christmas story, that this is Matthew 2. And so when we look around and we see chaos and we see destruction, and we see upheaval, we can actually say it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Because that first Christmas, you know, we don't see, we're not talking about um, candy canes and Christmas presents and Christmas carols and James Taylor albums. Jesus was not born into this warm, fuzzy Christmas scene that we often associate with Christmas, but he was born into a war zone. A war zone that was being played out on earth, but was actually primarily a spiritual war. He was born into the collisions of kingdoms. He was born into a world where, he, uh, where people were trying to extinguish him because the dragon was manipulating those human forces, i.e. Herod, because there was a competing king that showed up on the scene. And so when we look around the world today, we can say it also still looks a lot like Christmas. 
these collisions of kingdoms, these tensions, the, the church trying to figure out what does it mean to be faithful to King Jesus in a time when the world is not interested in bowing its knee to King Jesus. So that's the first scene, scene one in Act two that we see. And then we go on to scene two very briefly. It says, then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels and the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to earth with all his angels. Everybody say thrown down. You ever heard of the term throw down? I know, I know Sun West, you guys hang out in you know, cultures where you know, there's, there's back alley throwdowns happening all the time. Uh, so throwdown, is, it, it's, it's this violent uh, conflicting or image of conflict uh, that's describing somebody actually experiencing their defeat, being thrown down. We still use that phrase today. The actual Greek word that's being used here is the word bounced. Uh, and so we see that Michael is like the heavenly bouncer. Who, who bounces Satan, he throws down Satan. And six times in this text, in Revelation 12, John says, Satan, the devil, the accuser, the deceiver, was thrown down. He 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 was thrown down. Over and over and over again, John wants us to understand that this is the reality of what has happened. That Satan, and we don't know how this how this works, the Bible actually doesn't tell us, but the Satan at one point in history actually had access and there was conversations between God and Satan in heaven, but there became this point in history where, the, where he was thrown down out of heaven. He was bounced out of heaven to earth. Satan is bounced from heaven to earth. And this is important because the reality of reality, what, who is in control of the cosmos is not in question. But we also need to note that Satan has not been bounced out of earth to the abyss. And that's going to happen later on in Revelation and in history. So Satan has been bounced. He's been thrown down from heaven to earth. Michael has won. And more directly, the child has won. The victory we know through Revelation was the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this has resulted in Satan being thrown down to earth. Then we get to Acts 2, scene 3. We read, When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and half a time. and this time, times, and half a time, it's actually a reference to Daniel. We see that a couple of other places in Revelation. And it's also used in the parallel way, the same way to describe the 1,260 years, the three and a half, uh, or 1,260 days, the three and a half years. Uh, and same as the formula of time, times, that's two times together, three and a half a time, three and a half. Um, and there's different metaphorical ways that John is bringing in images from other places in the scripture to say the same thing, that this is a brief time. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a season, for 1,260 days, for three and a half years, for time, times, and half a time. And the dragon was angry at the woman and delivered war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's command, commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. So why is all this happening in our world? Why is the chaotic ha- chaos happening? Why does evil continue to have its way? 
This is the question that the early church was asking. We thought Jesus was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We thought this child was the Messiah, but it looks like the dragon is having his way. And John, Jesus through John, shows the church what is really happening. That the dragon is actually fighting, but he's not fighting because he's winning. He's fighting because he's been defeated. What we're experiencing is not proof of the dragon's victory, but it's actually proof of his defeat. This is what John is telling the churches. When you see evil and the pressure rising, it's not because what's happening, what's going to happen in history and the cosmos is actually in question. It's because the enemy has been quartered and cornered, and he's trying to do as much as he possibly can to undo what Jesus has done. He can't go after Jesus. He's been bounced out of heaven. And so what does he do? He goes after what Jesus loves. In particular, he keeps accusing the church of their sins. Jesus the Lamb has forgiven our sins. Jesus' enemy will keep throwing our sins in our face, but Jesus has embraced us as his own. Jesus' enemy will keep whispering that we don't deserve it, but Jesus is at work making us whole, freeing us from addictions. Jesus' enemy will keep tempting us to draw back into the traps that maybe marked our past lives, but Jesus is drawing us deeper into intimacy with him and his Father and the Father and the Spirit. We see this battle that's being played out, but it's because the enemy has been cornered. Much uh, like a wild animal that's been cornered, and he doesn't know what to do, and so he's acting out, ferociously acting out. He's been backed into a corner. He is dealing out destruction because he knows that his end is near, and he's desperate. John is saying that is what's happening in the world. And do you have the eyes to see it? So we may look at the world and say, what is happening Is God even there? Is God even in control? Does God even have a plan? Is Jesus actually king or not? It looks like the dragon has won, but John pulls back the curtain. He gives us the apocalypse and saying, actually, Satan's been bounced out of heaven to earth. He knows that his time is short. And he's trying to create as much destruction as he possibly can in the present because he hates Jesus And therefore, he hates what Jesus loves. And he is working against everything that Jesus is working for. So do not fret. Do not fear. It looks scary, but the end is near. So then the question is, how does the church, if this is why what's happening is happening, how does the church act in the present? How do we overcome? And again, we see similar themes as we go through the cycles of Revelation, similar themes that Jesus has been encouraging us with all along. And we see in the core, at the core of the chapter of Revelation 12, in the core of the book of Revelation, as this is the center of the book itself, we have this statement, and they, the church, have defeated him, Satan, the accuser, the deceiver, the devil. They've defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives as much that they were afraid to die. And I know this sounds like a really heavy statement, but this is the apocalypse and the good news. That Jesus has already won the victory. That we live in the present time where the enemy is trying to create pain and destruction by accusing, by deceiving, and by eventually killing and murdering. And we're living in this present time, this temporary time, this 1,260 days, this three and a half years, this time, times, and half a time. And it feels like a significant amount of time, 
But the apocalypse tells us that it's a temporary amount of time. And so in this temporary time, in this time in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, how then do we live? How then do we overcome? And we're told by the blood of the Lamb. When Satan accuses and throws sin in your face, you can testify that Jesus' blood has given a different verdict. We overcome the dragon by claiming the saving power of the blood of the Lamb. And so when Satan comes to us and says, you know what, you're a sinner. Do you know what you've done? We can say, you're right, I have sinned, but that's not who I am. The blood of the, the, blood of the Lamb tells me that I am a saint, not a sinner. And it tells me I'm a saint because of what Jesus has done, that he lived this perfect, sinless life, that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin, that he took my place, and that he was resurrected again on the third day. And because of that, he lives victorious. And so Satan, that means that your enemy, or that your defeat, is inevitable. And I stand victorious with Jesus. I am in Christ. The blood of the Lamb says that I am forgiven, that I am a child of God. And so we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome by the word of our testimony. So we overcome the dragon by testifying to to the truth. So when the dragon comes and accuses us and deceives us, we can actually default to the truth that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Son of Man, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God who came to earth, that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is the bread of life, that Jesus alone gives living water, that I have hope and trust that this is going to work out for my good because of what Jesus has done. Only Jesus has the keys to death and Hades, and only Jesus can open the scroll of history. And one day the Bible tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we overcome because of the blood of the Lamb and by testifying to the truth. And we overcome when we do not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. We overcome by being willing to die for the truth. Sure, we, we may lose our lives, as many have and are still, it's still happening today, but when we lose our lives, we do not lose. That is the good news of the apocalypse. When we lose our lives, we do not lose. And actually, when the people of God lose their lives, even though it looks like defeat, the shalom project of God continues to move forward. His kingdom actually comes to earth. Just as when the lamb died on the cross and the the world and the enemy thought that that was God's defeat, it was actually his victory. And so we mimic the way of the lamb. We give our very lives if we need to because it's actually through the self-sacrifice of the way of Jesus that the kingdom of God moves forward. And so we see the parallel that the role of the enemy, the role of the Satan, the role of the dragon is to accuse And when the Satan accuses us of our sins, we actually overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Those two are parallel. When the Satan comes and he throws your past in front of you, we actually don't go to our past, but we go to the historic past of Jesus of Nazareth, who was died and was resurrected, and we say, that is the verdict of my life. When Satan deceives, when the devil deceives, which means to speak lies, and that's his native tongue, we counteract that in a parallel way by the word of our testimony. So the Satan is lying, but the people of God speak the truth. The Satan is trying to deceive, but the people of God speak the truth. They testify to who Jesus is and what he's done. And we also see the parallel that, that, that Satan, the devil, doesn't just deceive, doesn't just tell lies, but he's a murderer. 
And the people of God overcome by not giving into the threat of murder, by not giving into the threat of death, by not living a life of fear, but living a life of victory, because we know that even death itself, the first death, as Revelation calls it, does not have the final word. So we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and by not loving our lives so much as to shrink from death. And in our part of the world, we may not be facing the threat of death of following Jesus, and I'm not saying that won't happen one day. But the dragon actually fights against us by overcoming us through fear in different ways, even beyond the fear of death. And maybe more likely in our current scenario, he overcomes us uh, by trying to convince us to be embarrassed about our faith. We overcome by being willing to be called naive and unfisticated. We overcome Satan by willing to be embarrassed by testifying to who Jesus is. We overcome, uh, even when people think faith is unintelligent and uninformed, we overcome by saying, be that as it may, I'm still going to speak his name and announce the good news that Jesus is Lord. Maybe instead of the fear of death, it's actually the fear of being different. It's the fear of losing comfort. It's the fear of all sorts of things. We, what is the fear that drives us? We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and by willing to live our lives and even give our lives for the sake of Jesus. And this is the good news apocalypse, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is on the throne. It's good news for the whole cosmos. When we pull back the curtain of what's really going, going on in our lives, we, re, we recognize that what we're experiencing is just because there is a very real enemy that is already defeated. There's a child that has been born, and that child grew up to be the Messiah. That child grew up to give his life for you and I, and that child was resurrected three days later, and because of his death and resurrection, we can live with confidence today. And the good news is that he has been installed as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords of the entire universe. And the good news is that the dragon has been bounced. Would you stand with me as we respond in worship? Lord, we thank you for the good news. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word to help us understand, to have a mental map um, of what is going on in the present. Lord, we recognize that many people in this room are under pressure to assimilate, to compromise. Maybe they're being persecuted. There's pressure because of their faith. Lord, we thank you for the reminder in this text that what we're seeing and what we're experiencing is just because evil is desperate because you have already won. Lord, we thank you that we don't need to live in fear because our eternity and our hope is secure. So Lord, may we live in light of this apocalypse. May we overcome. May we remember the blood of the Lamb and what that means for who we are. May we testify to the truth when the enemy comes to deceive. And may we hold our lives loosely because we know ultimately that death is not the final word. Lord, continue to captivate our imaginations and our faith that we may remain faithful 
to follow the way of the Lamb. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So when the dragon, the red dragon, shows up, the Satan, the accuser, the devil, the deceiver, the thief, the murderer, we've been given the the tools and the truth and the resources to overcome. So maybe it's fear that you're walking through this morning. Uh, Be encouraged. Be encouraged because... There is actually nothing that the enemy can do that changes the course of your eternity. That even if we experience death, even that doesn't have the final word. And that word actually allowed the the early church to live a life so courageously and victoriously because they were convinced that there was nothing that could separate them from the love of God. When the dragon, the enemy, comes and he accuses you, you've been given the truth because of the blood of Jesus of who you are. So I don't know your past, and Satan might know your past, but it doesn't matter because Jesus has actually rewritten your story. In the same way that Jesus was perfect and without sin, that is the way that God looks at you and I, and he calls us saint, not sinner. And so when the accuser comes and calls you a sinner and brings your past in front of you, you can say, that is not who I am. When the deceiver comes and he brings lies and wants to convince you of things that aren't true, We know the truth, and we can testify to the truth that there's a King of kings, that there's a Lord of lords, that there's one that sits on the throne of the cosmos, and I have bent my knee, and I have given my life to him. And so I won't fall for your lies. I won't fall for your deception. I pray that uh, we would, again, just be captivated by the this good news, beautiful picture of Revelation 12, and we will continue to be people that overcome in the present as we wait between the first and the second coming of Jesus to be people of the Lamb. Let us pray. Um, if you would like prayer for anything, uh, we just have we have prayer teams available at the end of the service. We would love to uh, to pray for you if God is storing up anything in your life and your heart. Um, so again, Father, we just thank you for the gospel, which means the good news which we see in the apocalypse. And because of that, Lord, we can say this apocalypse is not a bad news story. It is a great news story. Lord, would you allow us to see what's happening in our lives and our world from your heavenly perspective? Would we, like John, enter into your throne room, enter deeper into this revelation, into this apocalypse, to see that you are at the center of the world, that there's nothing that can be done or will be done that will put into question the plans that you have in place. Lord, may we be people of courage. May we be people that overcome lies, that overcome addictions, that overcome deception, that overcome fear because of the truth of your good news. May that transform us from the inside out in a world that looks a whole lot like Christmas. Lord, may we be good news people. In the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week. Uh, we'll see you next week as we look at the dragon and the two beasts.
Thank you.